pray that this worship service would be a time where we would be made aware of our own sin, but also aware of the salvation that you've brought us and the forgiveness that we have in you. And that all of the songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray would bring glory and honor to you, Father, because we know that you are truly worthy. And Father, as we come to your word now, we ask that you would speak to us clearly. Lord, we know we need your guidance. We know we need your leading. And so we come to your word wanting to hear you speak. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that this morning and that that anything that would hinder us from hearing you speak would be removed. Any fears or frustrations or anxieties, any of that would be pushed to the side, Lord, so we could hear you speak clearly and powerfully to us this morning. Lord, we pray that you would open our ears to hear our eyes to see, and our hearts to receive what you have to say to us this morning. And all God's people said, Amen. So, I have the interesting slash difficult task of preaching on four chapters of the Bible. (laughs) Which means... Um, you know, it's going to be kind of surface view of kind of overall themes happening in each of these four chapters. Um, but it also means I, we're not going to read through all four chapters before the sermon because that would take a long time. So we're going to read one chapter. We're going to read chapter 18 this morning. But I encourage you that after church you go home and read them all together and make sure that um, what I'm saying is what is true. <laughs> And coming from God's word. So go home after this. Read 15, 16, 17, and 18. But for our scripture reading this morning, we're just looking at chapter 18. After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants grew rich from her excessive luxuries. I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven. And God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen, I'm not a widow, and I never will mourn. Therefore in one day her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine, She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe, O great city, O Babylon, city of power. In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple silk, and scarlet cloth. 
every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and bodies and souls of men. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your riches and splendors have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who traveled by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea, will stand far off. And when they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, flute players and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No workman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never, never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of a bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's great men. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In, he, in her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints and all who have been killed on the earth. Well, we all, uh, we all have a tendency, kind of a natural tendency, I, I think, to make comparisons. Um, there's this tendency when we get in a crowd of people to kind of start comparing ourselves with the people around us. Um, am I smarter or stupider than they are? Am I prettier or uglier than them? Am I richer or poorer than they are? Am I more compassionate or more whatever? Than they are, and for for a number of reasons, right? That that kind of comparison mentality really hits a peak when you get to about middle school or high school, right? Middle school and high school is the season of life where you're always looking at everybody around you, wondering how you measure up. But they don't really disappear as we get older, do they? We all still have this natural tendency to kind of compare ourselves with those around us, but. There's a problem when we do that, um, because when we're comparing ourselves with the people around us, what's the standard that we're comparing ourselves with? We're comparing ourselves with the people. The standard is the people around us, and that's a problem. Uh, just imagine that you're back in high school, and uh, you, you had to take a math test, and the next day, the teacher's passing out all the sheets of paper with the grades on it, and you ask kind of the group of people around you, and you say, how, how many did you get right? 
And they all say, I got five right, I got five right, I got five. And as that kind of keeps going on, all of them get five right. You feel pretty good about yourself because you got ten right. And so you must be really smart. Like twice as smart as everyone around you. Um, Ignoring the fact that there were 200 questions on the test and you got a 5%. Right? And sure, you got a 5% and they got 2.5%. But in the grand scheme of things, there's no difference <laughs> between a 2.5% and a 5%. And what we do is we do that with sin all the time. We kind of measure ourselves with those people around us in the world and we say, well, at least I don't drink as much as that person. At least I go to church more often than that person. At least I give more money than that person. At least I don't speed like that person. And to be honest, none of that matters. Because the people around us aren't the standard that we're called to live up to. Um, the standard is God. And, uh, and the standard's pretty high. It, it kind of makes us get uncomfortable because he says... You, therefore, must be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. And we think, whoa, I can't do that. It's a lot easier to measure myself against everyone else. (laughs) But if I measure myself against this standard, I'll, I'll never measure up. Which is why we're thankful for Jesus. But what happens is, as we, as we measure ourselves and we, as we measure our sin against the people around us, rather than against God, we always will downplay our own sin. Sin becomes not a very big deal because we look around and we think, I'm just a nice Midwestern Wisconsinite, right? I'm a pretty good person. I'm not like those rude New Yorkers, Right? Those crazy Minnesotans. <laughs> All right, we're, we're kind of better than most. I mean, I look around and I think, yeah, I'm kind of better than most of the people around me. It's not like I'm some wicked sinner. And then we read passages like Revelation 18 and we read uh, Revelation 16 as these bowls of wrath are poured out and we cringe. We, we read 16 and we see a bowl of wrath poured out and we see wrath and judgment poured out on the earth and we see another bowl and then more wrath and judgment poured out on the earth because of sin and we think, man, why is God so severe? I mean, he just needs to lighten up a little bit. Or, or we just kind of ignore it and we kind of just jump in with some of the popular crowd right now and say, our God, he's not a God of wrath and judgment. Our God's a God of love. He wouldn't do that. And that's wrong, right? Our God, obviously, God is a God of love, but the Bible also shows that he's a God of wrath and judgment. And the truth is, he's a God of wrath and judgment because he is loving. Because God pours out wrath and judgment on sin because it is evil and wicked and destroys everything that is good. 
That's the nature of sin. It's wicked and evil, and it destroys every good thing in the earth, and we can't forget that. And this week I was reading Herman Bovink, and he says this about the nature of sin. The nature of sin is such that it progressively renders sinners more foolish and hard, entangles them ever more firmly in its snares, and propels them ever more rapidly down a slippery slope toward the abyss. Right? This is the nature of sin, all sin in us. It, it slowly hardens our heart and makes us ignore God. It, it, it captures us as in a trap and pulls us down into hell, away from God. And if God were to see that as the good shepherd and not pull out his stick and beat sin, he would not be a good shepherd. Right? The good shepherd has a rod and a staff. The staff is gently guiding sheep, and the staff is there, the rod is there to beat off wolves and anything trying to kill his sheep. And so when God sees sin coming in, trying to destroy his people, he pulls out the rod and he judges it. And the reality is this kind of nature of sin... It progressively hardens our hearts. It it blinds us. It pulls us down into hell. That is true of every sin. Uh, Just take a moment. I'll skim through quickly through the Ten Commandments. We should worship one God. No idols. Don't misuse the name of God's... Don't misuse God's name. Remember the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother. mother. No murder. No adultery. No stealing, no lying, no coveting. And some of these we like to kind of put in categories, well, that one's not a big deal, right? If I just lie a little bit, that's just a little sin, right? Or if I covet a little bit, that's just a little sin. And the reality is all of those, none of those are just little sins. All of those are progressively rendering you more foolish and hard and trapping you and pulling you down into the pit. Every sin is wicked and evil and destroys every good thing, even you. It will destroy you. And so we get into chapter 16 and we see these bowls of wrath poured out. And this kind of, there's seven bowls of wrath, right? And there's, this is our third grouping of seven, but it's different, isn't it? You know, we had the first seven were seven seals and we saw wrath being poured out on a quarter of the earth, right? And then, then the seven trumpets come out and there's more wrath poured out on a third of the earth. And now we get to the seven bowls of wrath and there are no more fractions. It's total. It's complete. This is the end of the line. This is the kind of the final birth pains right before God brings the kingdom into the world. And it's this moment where God is no longer overlooking the sins of the world, right? There's, you, you read through the Psalms and there's this repeated cry like, God, how come all these wicked and evil people are still prospering? I don't get it. And they're like, just be patient. God's got his plan. God's got his plan. And now it's leading up to this moment where God's like, I'm not overlooking it anymore. I'm coming in full judgment and wrath against sin. And it's interesting that there's two responses that happen. 
So as God's pouring out judgment and wrath on sin in the world, you have one response coming from those who have rejected God and have embraced their sin. And they respond by cursing God and refusing to repent. I mean, this line is just repeated throughout 16. They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. And so you have God judging sin, which you would think, right? We, we look at that and we think, man, that should open their eyes to the, the foolishness of sin and that will that'll change their mind. They'll turn around and then they'll, they'll turn to God. And instead it says, they just double down in their sin. They grab hold of it tighter. They refuse to let go of it. And instead they look up at God and they shake their fist at him and say, to heck with you, God. Hard heart, refusing to repent which is the repeated picture throughout the book of Revelation. As you go through Revelation, there's never an image of people who, who want to turn to God but can't and are judged. Right? The only the people who receive judgment are those who choose to remain going in that path. They want to. And, and there's, there also isn't a picture of someone who's wanting to turn from their sin. They just want to turn from their sin, but they're going to get judged in their sin anyways. That's not the picture. You repent and believe in Jesus, you're... But the picture who are in their sin saying, I love this more than you, and to heck with you. And then they end up receiving the consequences of that decision. They receive the judgment and the wrath that comes with it. But there's another response from the angels and from God's people in this chapter. So the angels cry out in the midst of all of the wrath and judgment. They cry out to God, just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you, were, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And then God's people cry out right after this, and they say, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And it's, it's interesting to see that because we read through these judgments and we get uncomfortable and we have this tendency to think, man, God, chill out a little bit. And yet the angels in heaven and God's people in heaven look at these judgments and they say, yeah, this is just. This is right. The angels even say, it is what they deserve. And we think, ooh, right? There's kind of a gut reaction. Whoa, do they deserve that? And the reality is, if we feel that way, if we cringe when we hear, this is what they deserve, it's because we haven't fully grasped how evil sin is and how wicked sin is. We've kind of downplayed it in our life. We've thought sin isn't that big of a deal. And yet, if we saw sin as clearly as the angels in heaven, if we saw sin as clearly as God's people in heaven, we would see this judgment and say, this is just. That's what we'll say at the end of time. We'll look back and say, we're not going to get to the end of time and look back and say, God, why didn't you do that differently? We'll get to the end and we'll say, Ah, yeah, that was right. That was good. 
and will even say, it is what they deserve. And in the midst of all of this kind of wrath and judgment, there's another theme that kind of rolls through these chapters. It's this theme of sin not living up to its promises. And idols not being the hope and comfort that they promised. I mean, we know that that we're tempted to sin because it gives us some promises, right? There's promises of joy and pleasure, right? The only reason we would be tempted to lie is because we think it would help us out in some way, right? The only reason we're, we're tempted to ignore the Sabbath is because we think we would find joy somewhere else. Or the only reason we're ever tempted into adultery or lust is because we think we'll find greater pleasure there. There's this promise being held out by sin, and yet as we go through chapter 16, we see all of those promises burned up and gone. All the pleasure that sin said was going to be there, gone, disappeared. And we get into chapter 18, and we see all of these idols just being toppled and thrown down. And it keeps saying, in an hour, which means it didn't take much for God to destroy them. In an hour, this idol crumbled to pieces. And in an hour, this idol crumbled to pieces. And then we see people weeping and wailing. As, as It says, Babylon, Babylon. Everybody thought Babylon, right? Babylon's just the image of these powerful cities that reject God and everyone puts their hope in them. But as Babylon's thrown down, the city that everyone thought was great, everyone thought was going to give them their hope, it says the kings of the earth weep and wail as they see the smoke of her burning. They put their hope and their trust in this kingdom. They thought this would be their savior and now they're watching it burn. And all of their hopes and dreams and trusts are going up in smoke right along with the city. And then next we see another idol toppled and burned and crushed. And we see another idol toppled and burned and crushed. And we see people weeping and wailing because they put their hope and their trust in things that were gone. Idols are going to be destroyed. They will be no more. They can't fulfill their promises. They can't Meet the needs that you want from them. And if you put your hope in these things, you put your trust in these things, they will let you down and you will be left weeping and wailing. There's this haunting line in the middle, kind of this analogy. It says, the fruit for which your soul longed for is gone. And all the delicacies and all the splendors, they're lost to you, never to be found again. All of these idols you thought would taste so good, all these idols that you thought would give you power and wealth and money, gone. And left weeping and wailing. And, and they're weeping and wailing because they found out, they finally realized that these things did not give them the hope and the trust and the comfort that they thought they were told that if they, if they longed for these things, if they desired these things, they would, they would get ahead in life. They would find peace, and yet now they're burning, and they have no peace, and they'll never be back again, it says. They said, desire these types of things, and that'll help get you ahead, and now those desires have been removed, never to be found again. And chapter 18 kind of ends with this haunting refrain where it says, no more, no more, no more. It says, Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down with violence and will be found 
no more. The sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. A craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. The sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. The light of a lamp will shine in you no more. The voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. And it's a reminder for all of us that if we try to put our hope and trust in any of these things, they will disappear, they will crumble, they will fall, and they will leave us weeping and wailing. They will let us down. They will not meet our needs. And so as they cry out for Babylon, if we, if we put our hope and trust in the United States of America, it will let us down. It is not an eternal, everlasting kingdom. It will let us down, and you will be left weeping and wailing. We don't put our hope and trust here. We put our hope and trust in entertainment and the arts and music and all of that. They will be no more, and they will let you down. If you put your hope and your trust in your workplace and in money and savings and all of that, you will be let down. They will disappear. They will never be found again, and you'll be left weeping and wailing. They will let you down. And they will be destroyed. Which is why in the middle of this, God looks out to his people and says, come out of her, come out of Babylon, my people, lest you take any part in her sin, lest you share in her plagues. And and it's talking about this, this temptation that we have to put our hope and trust, even as God's people, to put our hope and trust in all the same things that the world does because we're surrounded by people, right? We're surrounded by people who are putting their hope and trust in all of these things. And so we're tempted to do that as well. And, like I mentioned at the beginning, we're always comparing ourselves. And so we say, well, at least I don't put my hope and trust in the United States like that person. At least I don't put my hope and trust in my work and job like that person. And this says, no, 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 no. Just stay away from it. Don't put any hope and trust in these things. Because they will let you down. They will disappoint you. They'll leave you weeping and wailing. The point of all this is to keep our eyes on Christ. We're so easily our eyes drug off in one way or another, putting our hope and trust in these things. And and the, the point of all this is the reminder, we keep our eyes on Christ who is eternal. And he's our Savior. And even we're reminded, you know, last week we had kind of that uneasy message about the beast and how we're tempted to follow the beast. We're tempted to worship the beast and get led astray. And even Christians will be tempted to do that. And then this chapter we're reminded that they're going to make war on the Lamb, make war on Jesus Christ, but the Lamb will conquer them because he's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And those with him are called the chosen and the faithful. We're reminded that the beast will not win. That these idols that are waging war against God, they won't win either. That that he is the, at the end of history, he will be the only one standing. Which means he's the only one we should put our hope and trust in. He will never stumble. He will never fall. And when everything else fades away and everything else disappears, he will be standing there saying, Trust me. Put your hope in me. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. It's also why he's 
worthy of all of our praise and our glory. It's, there's this interesting thing that happens in all of these chapters where in the midst of all of the wrath being poured out, there's singing. And it even starts off with this song of God's people in chapter 15. It says, they sing out to God, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And then interestingly, after this song of praise, the very next thing that happens are the bowls of wrath are given out to the angels to pour out. And then the, then the temple's filled with God's glory. That there's this connection between God's glory and his judgment and wrath and his, him being worthy. And it's a reminder to us that God is actually glorified by bringing wrath and judgment against sin. That God's actually glorified by destroying those things that destroy his good creation here on earth. That as God overcomes these powerful nations and powerful idols, he's shown as being the one with all power, all authority, and all might. And at the end of history, when God has destroyed all sin and all idols, and he's the only one left standing, people will see. He's the one only, who's only truly worthy of our glory and our honor and our praise. When all the chaff is burned, when all the dross is scraped away, he will be the only one standing, the only one worthy of our hope and worthy of our trust. But there's one more part of this I want to mention before we end. I don't want any of us to forget that kind of uncomfortable feeling we get as we watch these bowls of wrath being poured out. We, we get, if, you're, if we're all honest with ourselves, you get a little bit of a knot in your stomach when you read this. We shouldn't forget it because the truth is that we deserve that as well. That the wages of sin is death and the wrath of God. That, that as those bowls of wrath are being poured out on the earth, we're supposed to see that we deserve that for our sin. That's how serious our sin is. It's not just some small thing. And yet, we're reminded that that wrath is actually what Christ bore on the cross for us. For all who've put their hope and trust and faith in him. That as he led up to the cross and as he hung on the cross, each one of those bowls of total wrath was being poured out on him. And he didn't deserve any of it because he was without sin. But he did it for us because we actually deserve it. Let's not forget. He bore the wrath for us. When we put our hope and our trust and our faith in him, that wrath that gets poured out on humanity that's rejected him gets all poured on Jesus Christ and we're saved. It's a big deal. Let's come to God in prayer. Oh Lord, we give you thanks for your word. And we give you thanks for passages that make us uncomfortable. Passages that remind us 
of our own blindness, our own temptations to downplay sin. Father, we ask your forgiveness. We ask your forgiveness for not taking our own sin seriously. We ask your forgiveness for the sin that we allow to hold on to us and that we hold on to. Lord, forgive us and set us free, we pray. Lord, we want to be your people. We want to bring glory and honor to you, so we pray that you would forgive us, that you'd cleanse us, and that you'd give us strength to be your people in this world. Father, help us not to take our sin lightly, but to see the glory that you have in store for us as you renew us. Father, help us to be your faithful people in the midst of a crazy world. May we faithfully keep our eyes on you, and may we faithfully keep our hope and trust in you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And all God's people said, amen.